So hopefully now it's obvious why I missed her so much last week. <laughs> no, that really was a wonderful, wonderful time of worship there. The thing that blessed my heart the most about that was when she began the last song, I heard everybody's voices picked up because it was a familiar song and everybody came and started worshiping together and that blessed my heart. That was wonderful. Um, so today's going to be a little bit different. Oh. Children's Church. I'm going to remember that one of these times. Uh, you want to go to Children's Church, just follow Miss Flo out. I'm sure she's got something wonderful planned. So today is going to be a little bit different. Um, today we're going to begin what I'm going to call a journey. Um, you know, we've preached messages, standalone messages before, and I've also preached messages that played a part in a larger series. Um, I'm calling this one a journey because I don't have a set end or a set amount of messages. It may be one message, two messages, it may be ten. I don't know. I'm just going to follow this through, and I, hopefully like you, am going to learn and grow as we do this journey together. Um, we are going to actually be in Luke 24, verse 13. But before we get there, I want to do a brief inventory of where we've been so far. And I've done this a couple times, and I've called it stealing uh, Phil Hagar's uh, catchphrase. I've called it pur purposeful redundancy or repetition, pur purposeful repetition, going back over it and going back over it and going back over it so that it begins to stick in your mind. So when we first got here in April, I preached a message on the hope in Christ. And it was triumphal entry, and I preached about the people that were surrounding Jerusalem at the time and how they had a certain idea of what they expected in the Messiah. And then when Christ came, He didn't meet their ideal, so their hope was deferred and it made their hearts sick. So our hope is found in Christ, but only in a scripturally accurate representation of Christ, not in our interpretation of who we think Christ is, but rather in what the Bible actually says that He is. And then the next week was Easter, and we preached on the resurrection. The reason why we have that hope is because of the power of the resurrection. And then after Easter, we began our John 3.16 series, and I won't go into each one of those messages, but the overall theme of the John 3.16 series was to answer the question, how do I get born again? What does it mean to be born of the Spirit, to be born of God? What does it mean to be saved? And we preached five messages, and each one of those messages answered the question, salvation is all of what? And the first week it was all of grace, and the second week it was all of God, and the third week it was all of Christ, and the fourth week it was all of faith, and the fifth week it was all of eternity. So it answered our question that salvation is all of the grace of God in Christ by faith, and it lasts forever. So when somebody asks you, what is salvation or how do I get saved? We can answer and we can say, we are saved through the grace of God found in Christ that we access by our faith and it lasts forever. And then after that, we had our first communion service. We'll have our second one today at following the message. But we had our first communion service, so we preached a specific message on the sufferings of Christ, talking about His body and the pain and the agony and the things that He went through leading up to the cross and His moments on the cross. And then we preached about the wonderful blood that was shed. It was shed. It was not spilt. Spilt denotes that it was an accident. But saying that it was shed was that it was the purposeful intent of Christ to shed His blood. That was the reason that He came into the world, that He might give His blood as the emblem of the new covenant for the remission of our sins. Remission means freedom. For the freedom of our sins. For the removal of our sins. 
And then we preached a message on Psalm 139. And that message on Psalm 139 was what God can do. He is omniscient. He is omnipresent. He is omnipotent, meaning that He is all-knowing, everywhere at once, all-powerful. And then we looked at, I believe it was Matthew 6, and we looked at the fact that He is omnibenevolent, or He is all-good, always good. God is good all the time. All the time God is good. And then we said, okay, so we know what God can do. Now, because He's all good, we know what God will do. And then we asked the question, why? And the answer is, we found in Hebrews 2.9, but we see Jesus. So God can do it, God will do it. And the reason that He will do it is because when He looks at us in the new covenant, He sees Jesus. He sees His Son, Christ. We are found in Christ, a new creation. And then after that message, we began a different series. We began a series on Christian maturity. And we looked at the five phases of Christian maturity. We looked at the unformed substance or the person that doesn't know God, the person that is God-curious or God-seeking. And then we looked at the babe in Christ. And then we looked at the child in Christ. And then we looked at the adult in Christ or the teacher in Christ. And then we looked at the parent or the father in Christ. And we answered questions about on each of those stages What is expected of this level of Christian maturity? How does God deal with us? How does He bless us? How does He discipline us? And then how do we relate to God in each of those steps? And we ended it with discipleship, that the difference between an adult or a teacher and a father or parent of a ministry is discipleship, replicating or reproducing themselves in another. And then last week we preached on baptism. We followed that service with a wonderful, wonderful, sacrament to the Lord and nine people were baptized and that was beautiful. And the reason that I wanted to do a brief inventory of all that we had done up to this point as far as messages goes is because in many ways we were on a journey. There were several standalone messages. There were a couple series in there. But it was a journey that led us to a climax point. And then now we're looking at it. And our journey began outside the gates of Jerusalem with the triumphal entry. And I want to go back back to our beginning, back to Jerusalem, back to when we started about hope in Jesus, and I want to begin a journey again. And I want to see where it leads us this time. This journey is going to be called the Emmaus journey. And like I said, we're going to be in Luke 24, verse 13. But before I start reading, I want to ask this question. And the good news is, I'm not going to answer this question today. I'm going to answer it next week. I'm going to ask you a question throughout the message. Don't let it consume you but ponder the question. And then this week, in your prayer time, in your own Bible study, in your own reading, in your own time of devotion, just continue to churn that question in your mind. And the reason that I'm doing this is because I want you to begin to seek the Spirit of God to reveal the truth of God's Word to you. My purpose is to make it where you can come to God on your own. My purpose is to make it where you can pick up this book and you can hear the Spirit of God on your own. You don't need, I want you to get to the place where you don't need somebody to open this book and tell you what the secrets are or what the wonderful mysteries of God are. I want you to get to a place in your Christian maturity where you can open this book and you can hear the voice of God yourself. That's my goal as a pastor. And regardless of how big this church gets, regardless of how many people we have attending, regardless if we ever have to shut the doors or we get a bigger building or we get downgrade or any of that, regardless of any of that, If I can get the people that are here right now to a place to where they can hear from the Spirit of God in the Word of God, then I will feel like I have succeeded. Because my job is not growing a big 
church, quote unquote, my job is growing a big church as in the individuals that make up the church. So the question is this, was the road to Emmaus, the passage that we're about to read, was it a success or was it a failure? That's the question. And the great thing about it is, is when you're on on your own, if you get the wrong answer, it doesn't matter because it's you trying to get to a place where you can hear from the Spirit of God yourself. So don't worry about right or wrong answer. Just seek God on that. Next week, I'll give you the answer. And if you were right, praise God. If you were wrong, praise God, you're growing. Luke 24, verse 13. That very day... What very day? The very day is the resurrection. This is later in the afternoon of the uh, first day of the week when Jesus had risen from the dead. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all of these things that had happened, all of the things that had happened to Jesus. They were talking about Jesus. And while they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself drew near and went with him, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you were holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who is a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things have happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. That word amazed is perplexed, astounded. They put us out of our right frame of mind. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart, to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all, big word there, in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them, and when he was at the table with them, he took bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did our hearts not burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scripture? Funny side note, this has nothing to do with the message, but a night or two ago, I was sitting with Asher and I was putting him to bed, and I was, you know, we just talk through Bible stories. Sometimes we'll read them from his little child's Bible, or sometimes we'll just tell him the Bible story, you know, just kind of paraphrase the story. And I was telling him this particular story because I had been meditating on it. And I got to the part where they were talking about Jesus and Jesus walked up and he started giggling. And I made this statement. I said they were talking about Jesus to Jesus and he just lost it. This has nothing to do with anything, but he just lost it and he laughed so hard he started crying about it. And I'm like, man, 
If only we could get that much joy out of just simple things in God's Word. If only we could get to the place where we could just simply read God's Word and just pick up on something like that and it just amaze us. Bring that much joy. Because there's very few things in this life that bring the joy like hearing a child laugh. Anyone that has young children, when they hear their son or their daughter laugh, it just it warms your heart. And to hear him laugh that hard over something that concerning Scripture, that much joy was brought, blessed my heart. And so that's the thing that I want in this message, us to find the joy of the Lord. And the best part is, I said we were going back to the beginning, back to Jesus. What is the joy of the Lord? The joy of the Lord is not only our strength, but the joy of the Lord is also our Christ. He is the joy of the Lord. So in Him, we have the capability to tap into and access the everlasting, ever-abounding joy of the Lord. Now understand, joy and happiness are not the same thing. Happiness is dependent upon your circumstance. You can be happy because you got a new car. You can be happy because you just closed on your house. You can be happy because it's your birthday. That's not joy. That's a circumstantial, fleeting, and fading thing. Joy is an emotional stability that no matter what happens, even if I jump off the track for a second, in just another second, I'm going to be right back on that track knowing that God is my provider. He is my protector. He is my strength. He is my faithful, faithful friend. He is everything that I need Him to be. So regardless of whether the circumstance is good and I'm happy or it's bad and I'm temporarily upset, my joy in Him remains constant. And that is found in Christ. So the first thing I want you to notice about this, when they're walking, they're talking, but they're in doubt. Neither person, Cleopas or the unnamed disciple, neither person believe that any of this stuff is true. They're leaving Jerusalem. They're leaving the company where the other disciples are at and they're headed to another village. What purpose they're heading to Emmaus, we never find out because they don't even stay there once they get there. But they're leaving. And this is confirmed. Um, They were looking sad when Jesus approached. Uh, Verse 19, they said, A man who was, as in past tense, he was our hope, but he's not our hope anymore. We had hoped, verse 21. Um, verse 22 really seals the deal when they said, when the women went and said that he was risen, we were amazed, which is really perplexed, as in it put us out of our right frame of mind. We really didn't believe what they had said. That's when Christ comes with the beautiful, beautiful rebuke in verse 26. And he says, Oh, foolish ones, was it not necessary that all of these things should happen? Was it not necessary that Christ... Let's go to the exact verse. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into His glory? I want to read a couple passages here. You don't have to turn to any of these. Acts 2.23 This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan, definite plan, and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men, was necessary. Isaiah 53.10 says, It was the will of the Lord to crush Him. It was necessary. Revelation 5, 6, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain from the foundation of the world. It was necessary. All of the things that happened to Jesus were necessary in the plan of God because if the things that happened to Jesus didn't happen to Jesus, you would still be dead in your sins, you would still be guilty of a transgress against the law, and you would be destined to spend an eternity in hell. Everything that happened had to happen. Jesus not only had to die on the cross, He not only had to get up from the dead, but He had to be beaten because anyone that has an enmity against someone else, according to the law, has to take stripes on their back. Every 
ounce and every moment of Jesus' sufferings was perfectly choreographed and coordinated so that you and I might have the ability to walk into and step into relationship with God. Every single thing that happens, every single thing that happened, God foreknew it, He ordained it, and He made it definite that it was going to happen. Regardless of what pieces He had to move around, according to His sovereign will, His sovereign purpose, He made sure that Jesus would suffer and die and raise so that you and I might not only be redeemed, reconciled, justified, but that we might also have resurrected life and fellowship with the Father. Everything was necessary. Now here, we're going to get into the real crux of the message, and this is what's going to begin or be the catalyst for our journey. Verse 27, And beginning with Moses, meaning the five books of the Bible that Moses wrote, the Pentateuch, the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, beginning with Moses and then proceeding to all of the prophets, the rest of the Old Testament as we know it, he expounded and he revealed himself. He interpreted the Scriptures and all things concerning himself. I want to show you something. First, I'm going to quote these two verses to you real quick. Hebrews 10.7 may be my favorite verse in the entire Bible. And it talks about the coming of Jesus. It's a quote from Psalm 40, verse 8. And it says, Lo, I come, Christ, lo, I come. In the volume or the entirety of the book, it is written of me to do thy will, O God. The entirety of the Bible, every jot and tittle, every ounce, every word, every sentence, every paragraph, every phrase, every page of every chapter of every book in the Bible is about Jesus. It either points to Him directly, it either is an anti-type, a type, a shadow, a hint, a direction, a story where the overall theme of the story is pushing towards Him. Everything in this Word points directly to Jesus. That's why when we began here in April, we used that as our starting point to catalyst us onto a journey. And that's why now that we're beginning this new Emmaus journey, we're going back to that point at Jerusalem, which is funny, that's where the Emmaus walk began, back to Jerusalem, and we're going to use that same point that it's all about Jesus to catapult us on this new journey that we're about to take. Everything is about Jesus. Leonard Ravenhill may be my favorite preacher of all time, and he's famous for this quote. He said, Christianity is Jesus Christ plus or minus nothing. Christianity is Jesus Christ. And the reason why I'm a part of the Alliance, probably the number one reason that I became a part of the Alliance is because George Partington said this statement. He said, from the beginning of our movement, it has been the theme of our movement Not so much to preach a doctrine, but to preach a man, the man Christ Jesus. And that's why I align with the Alliance, because yes, we preach doctrine, but there is a wide umbrella about the doctrinal disagreements that we might have as long as it doesn't take away from the authority of the Scripture. But everyone has to hold on to the central umbrella handle that is our statement of faith that is Jesus Christ and everything that concerns Him. He is the Messiah. He is our substitutionary sacrifice. He was born of a virgin. He lived a sinless life. He gave His life on Calvary, after that in Gethsemane, He had took upon Him all the sin of the world. He who knew no sin became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. They hung Him on a tree. Therefore, because He hung on a tree, He became a curse. So we're free from a curse. Everything must be about Jesus. 
We can disagree on end time theology. We can disagree on Calvinism and Armenianism. We can disagree on these peripheral doctrines as long as we can align on the simple fact that Jesus Christ is the fullness, Him that filleth all in all. He is our central focus. That's why the title of this message is All About Jesus. To further emphasize that point, John 5.39, Jesus says this. He says, You search the Scriptures because that you think that in them you have eternal life. And yet it is them that bear witness about me. He continues that later on in that same discourse in John 5.46. He says, For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But you don't believe his writings, so how can you believe my words? So he's telling the very Jewish audience that holds so fastly to their doctrine that because you're rejecting the man, you're also rejecting the doctrine that you think you're clinging to. And so often we do the same thing. We hold to our doctrine, but because we reject the person of Jesus Christ, we're actually rejecting the doctrine that we're clinging to. So I want to do this. I want to prove something to you. And this is going to take just a minute, so I hope that you bear with me. It says, He began at Moses... And then he proceeded for the rest of the Scriptures to reveal himself. And I told you a statement, a pretty powerful statement. I said every single book in this Bible points to Jesus. And now I'm going to prove it. In Genesis, he is our creator, the seed of the woman. He is Elohim, Adonai, the Most High God. In Exodus, he is the Passover lamb. He is the God of war. He is Yahweh. He is our healer. And he is the man of war. In Leviticus, he is our high priest. And he is also the God that sanctifies us. In Numbers, he is a cloud by day and a fire by night. In Deuteronomy, he is a prophet like unto Moses. In Joshua, he is the captain of our salvation. In Judges, he is the judge and lawgiver. He is our peace. In Ruth, He is our kinsman redeemer. In First and Second Samuel, He is a trusted prophet. In First and Second Kings, He is the only holy king. In First and Second Chronicles, He is the ever reigning king. In Ezra, He is the joy of the Lord. In Nehemiah, He is the restoration of Jerusalem. In Esther, He is the one who appoints the times. In Job, He is our restoration and our redeemer. In Psalms, He is our shepherd, our strong tower, our refuge, our shield, our defense. You could go on and on and on in Psalms. In Proverbs, He is the voice of wisdom. In Ecclesiastes, he is the preacher. In Song of Solomon or Song of Songs, he is the lily of valley and the rose of Sharon. In Isaiah, he is the prince of peace. He is the suffering servant. In Jeremiah, he is the balm of Gilead. He is the righteous branch. In Lamentations, he is the weeping prophet. In Ezekiel, he is the one who sits upon the throne of fire. He is Jehovah Shammah or the Lord who is present. In Daniel, he is the fourth man in the fiery furnace. In Hosea, he is the faithful husband. In Joel, he is the outpouring of the Spirit. In Amos, he is the revealer of mysteries, the burden bearer. In Obadiah, he is the Lord who is mighty to save. In Jonah, he is the foreign missionary. In Micah, he is the messenger. In Nahum, he is the avenger of God's elect. In Habakkuk, he is God's evangelist. In Zephaniah, he is our Savior. In Haggai, he is the restoration of God's heritage. In Zechariah, he is the fountain in the house of David. In Malachi, he is the son of righteousness with the healing in his wings. In the Gospel of Matthew, he is the Messiah. In the Gospel of Mark, He is the Son of Man. In the Gospel of Luke, He is the Great Physician. In the Gospel of John, He is the Son of God. In Acts, He is the foundation of the church. In Romans, He is our justification and our propitiation. In First and Second Corinthians, He is our sanctification. In Galatians, He is our redemption. In Ephesians, He is the armor of God. In Philippians, He is our provider and our joy. In Colossians, He is the fullness of the Godhead bodily. In First and Second Thessalonians, He is the coming King. In First and Second Timothy, He is the mediator between God and man.
man. In Titus, he is the faithful pastor. In Philemon, he is the friend that sticks closer than a brother. In Hebrews, he is the blood of the everlasting covenant, and he is the priest after the order of Melchizedek. In James, he is a God without partiality. In First and Second Peter, he is the chief shepherd. In First, Second, Third John, he is the God who is love. In Jude, he is the Lord coming with ten thousand of his saints. And in Revelation, he is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Praise God. He is God. He is the fullness of Scripture. He is the fullness of the Godhead of bodily. And every single word in this Bible points to Him. That's why out there on that reading list, when I put what you should look for when you're reading, the first thing that you should look for, who is Jesus? What does this tell me to Jesus? When we did Wednesday night, not this past Wednesday, but the week before, and I was telling them a thing on how I study Scripture, or one of the ways that I study Scripture, when I'm praying before I look at the verse or before I ever open my Bible, the thing that I pray is, show me Jesus. I put it, it's P. It's the P in that little thing on the whiteboard out there. And it's just, show me Jesus. I pray before I open the Word, God, show me Jesus. Show me how this passage reveals your Son. Show me how this passage can be applied to my life to make me more like your Son. Show me how this passage can be taken and I can put it in a form of worship to exalt and to glorify your Son. Show me Jesus. It is the Holy Spirit's job to reveal Christ to us and in us and through us. And one of the powerful things about this is when the church was founded, Jesus Christ, after He rose from the dead, He ascended to the Father to put His blood on the heavenly mercy seat. And then He spent 40 days with the disciples teaching them. Teaching them things that He hadn't taught them in the first three years that they were together. And then He said, tarry in Jerusalem until the promise comes. Tarry in Jerusalem. It's interesting that we're going back to Jerusalem, to back to the beginning, back to the launching point. Tarry in Jerusalem until the promise comes. And the promise was the gift of the Holy Spirit. And when they were baptized with the Holy Spirit in that room and they went out, I'm not talking about all the gifts. We can talk about charismatic gifts another time. What I'm talking about is the main work of the Holy Spirit. The work of the Holy Spirit when they come out it reveals Christ. It leads people into Christ. It teaches people Christ. That's why Peter's first great message was all about Jesus. And then in Acts 3, when he, wrote, when he healed the lame man, or God used him to heal the lame man, rather, and then he preached that message, he said, you're wondering if by our strength or by our power this man was healed. He said, it was done in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified. But the point that I want to make about that is that the apostles, the disciples, the whole three years that they were with Christ, they got it wrong time after time after time again. But then the Holy Spirit came and everything changed. I'm here to tell you that Paul, Peter and John and the other disciples in that room knew more about Christ 10 seconds after they received the baptism of the Holy Spirit than they would have known if they had spent 10 years studying the Old Testament or books that they had available to them. In 10 seconds, the Holy Spirit told them more. And I'm going to prove it. John 7, verse 37 39. You don't have to. You can turn if you want to, but you don't have to. You can just write these down. They'll be in the bulletin next week. 
On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whosoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And now he said this about the Spirit, whom those believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. The Spirit was given after Jesus was glorified. It's, that's important. John 15, verse 26. When the Helper comes, the Spirit, whom I will send you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, He will bear witness about Me, and you will also bear witness because you have been with Me from the beginning. So the Spirit of truth comes to us to bear witness about Christ, and because of Him bearing witness about Christ to us, we have the ability to bear witness about Christ to others. And now here's, here's the big one. Nevertheless, this is John 16, verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now can't bear him before the spirit of truth comes but when the spirit of truth comes he will guide you into all truth for he will not speak on his own authority but whatever he hears he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come he will glorify me Christ for he will take what is mine and declare it to you all that the father has is mine therefore I said he will take what is mine and declare it to you so he takes Christ and what concerns Christ and what belongs to Christ and he reveals that to us and then the final nail in the coffin to prove this point John 14 25 these things I have spoken to you while I'm still with you but the helper the Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in my name he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you he's bringing all the things to the remembrance that's why it's so crucial when you look and when we get to the book of Acts in our reading and you look at the things that Peter says, you realize that these are things that Peter is being brought to his remembrance with the help of the Holy Spirit, and they're being expounded to show Christ in them. Like when it talks about the beatings of Christ, they didn't realize at the time that the beatings of Christ were prophesied in Scripture, but then later they preach it like they knew it their whole lives because the Holy Spirit revealed it to them. When it talks about him busting into the temple, and saying, you make my father's house a den of thieves, but it should be a house of prayer. They didn't realize that that was the scripture, the zeal of thine house has eaten me up. But as soon as they get the Holy Spirit and they think back on things that have happened in their life, they see that it was Jesus and the Holy Spirit revealing Jesus and expounding that to them the whole time. And we have the ability the same way to look at scripture and to have the Holy Spirit in us expound this to us and reveal to us Jesus because in the end, it's all about Jesus. So the journey that we're beginning, the journey that I've deemed the Emmaus journey, don't know how many messages it's going to be, is going to be one that is all about Jesus. See, we're starting our own Emmaus journey. We're starting our own journey beginning at Jerusalem and allowing God to leave us, lead us. And hopefully, Jesus will be there with us the whole time and expounding these Scriptures through the power of the Holy Spirit to reveal Himself to us, just as He did with the Emmaus Walk. So I'm going to end with this. Was the Emmaus Road, what we just read in Scripture, was it a success or was it a failure? 
And I want you to pray about that. I want you to study that out. And I want you to see what the Spirit reveals to you concerning that. Um, Adam, if you would, as we pray, um, if you'll go get that communion. Um, and when you bring it back over, Dewey, if you'll come up and I'll have you guys hold the uh, bread and wine. And uh, we'll take communion together as a body.